So we are preaching through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And the end of chapter 5, we saw this last week, Paul makes powerful statement that I think is one of the most encouraging statements in the Bible, but it's also one that can be terribly misunderstood. The statement is, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the statement. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here's what Paul was talking about when he said that. Paul's talking about how sinful humanity is, how sinful we have all been apart from Christ. And that even when God gives us His good law, instead of sinning less, humanity sins more, showing how sinful we are. But the good news, Paul says, is that where sin increased, grace abounded all more, which means this. No matter how guilty we are for our sin, that guilt, all of it, can be forgiven through Christ. And it means no matter how enslaved we are to sin, that slavery can be broken through the power of Christ. Wherever sin increases, grace abounds all the more. That's what Paul says. But now having said that, Paul knows that could be terribly misunderstood. He knows that someone could think, well, if, if grace increases where sin uh, abounds, then why don't we sin more to get more grace? Isn't that what God would want us to do? And church, what is the answer? Okay. Say there's more confidence when we finish this up. The answer is no. We've been studying this in our home groups this last week. At the beginning of chapter 6, Paul raises that exact question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Look at verses 1 and 2, Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now let me explain. You could think that that means that Christians are sinless. It's not what Paul is saying. The reason we know that is because of the two words that he uses in verses 1 and 2. Let me point these out to you. First of all, in verse 1, notice that word continue. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Before we were saved, we were continuing in sin. That was the trend of our life. That was the pattern of our life. That was the habit of our life. It was sin, sin, sin. That's what we did. When you're saved, that changes. We don't become sinless, but that pattern of continuing in sin stops. We, we still do sin from time to time, yes, but, oh, that trend of sin stops. The other word is that word live in verse 2. Paul says, how can we who died to sin, still live in it. Again, the same idea. Before we were saved, we were living in sin. Sin, sin, sin. That was what we were living in. But when we were saved, we're powerfully transformed. We're no longer living in sin. We still do sin, but we're not living in sin. So Paul is not saying here that believers are sinless. I want to make sure we're 
clear on that. His point is we will not continue living in sin. We will not continue knowingly, willingly sin without repentance, without confession, without remorse. It's not what we'll do. We're changed. We will fight against temptation. We will resist the pull of darkness. And when we fail, when we stumble, we will hate that. We'll turn back to Christ. We'll confess. We'll repent. We'll be reassured of forgiveness. We'll be restored into fellowship with the Lord, and we'll, we'll get strengthened and get back into the battle again. That's what it means to be a Christian. But then the question is, why won't a saved person continue living in sin? Why? And Paul's answer is right there in verse 2. Read it again. He says, by no means will we continue living in sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? That's why we won't continue living in sin. Do you realize that when you put your trust in Christ, at that moment, you died to sin? You died to sin. Now, what does that mean? In verses 3 and 4, Paul explains what it means by giving us the picture of water baptism. He wants us to think about water baptism, what happened when you were baptized, because that will help us understand in what way we died to sin. Baptism teaches us something about dying to sin. So let's ask that at our next question. What does baptism teach us about dying to sin? And let's read verses 3 and 4. You'll notice how often he mentions the word baptized or baptism. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now I want you to notice that Paul in these verses is assuming that every believer has experienced water baptism. The reason I say that is because in verse 2, he's talking about we who have died in sin. That's every believer, all we who have died in sin. And then he's talking about the same we in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us, us, we who've been baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? So I just want to make the point here that Paul's assuming that every believer has been baptized. And that was the, the pattern of the early church. And the reason every believer in the early church was baptized is because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. But I want to point that out because it's easy for Christians to think, I put my trust in Christ at this point in time, Okay, now I need to start growing spiritually and I need to reach a certain level of maturity and spiritual strength and then I'll be able to get baptized once I reach that certain level. It's not what the Bible teaches. And you're missing out on a great grace from God if you, wait, I mean, the way we grow is by the grace of God and part of that's poured out upon us through baptism. Baptism is the first step of obedience Jesus calls believers to take. So you put your trust in Christ, you confess your sins, you're assured of forgiveness, and you say, Lord, what do I do? He goes, get baptized. That's the next step, water baptism. So 
Listen, if you are trusting Christ and you've not experienced water baptism, talk to your home group leader, uh, talk to one of the elders, send us an email, mail at gracechurchabudabi.com. Somebody will sit down with you, open up the scriptures, answer your questions, pray with you, and we'll move ahead towards having a glorious water baptism celebration, and God will pour His grace out upon you even more. It's going to be beautiful. So don't hold back on baptism until you think you've got to reach some certain level of spirituality. Are we clear? This is so important. Okay. But what I want us to focus on now in verses 3 and 4 is, what does water baptism teach us about dying to sin. Paul says that when we put our trust in Christ, we all died to sin. What does that mean? And let's read verses 3 and 4 again, and I want you to notice the focus on how baptism pictures us dying with Christ. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Water baptism is a picture of what already happened to you the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ. The moment you turn to Christ and trust Him, turn from your sin, put your trust in Christ as your Savior, your Lord, your treasure, at that moment you are united with Christ in a real, spiritual, emotional, relational bonding. There's love, there's joy, there's reliance, there's trust, there's fellowship, there's conversation. You are united with Christ at that moment. And part of being united with Christ means You are united with Christ in His death on the cross and in His resurrection from the tomb. When Christ died, you died with Him. And when Christ rose, you rose with Him. So because you're trusting Christ, you died with Christ to sin and you rose with Christ to new life. And what... What does that mean? I I read a sermon this last week that really helped me. Um, Pointed out three stages to look at this from, and this kind of put it all together for me. I hope you find this helpful. Stage one is Jesus dying on the cross. It all starts there 2,000 years ago, Jesus' death on the cross. Remember, we were all sinners by nature and by choice. We saw last week that because of Adam's sin, We're all born sinners, and as a result, we all choose sin. We live in sin. We continue in sin, like I said earlier. Our pride made us turn our backs on God. We're enslaved to sin, and we're facing His judgment forever, but in great love and compassion and mercy and cost, God the Father sent Jesus the Son to the cross. And when Jesus died on the cross, one of the things he did was break the power of sin. He did that by purchasing the gift of the Holy Spirit, who sets us free from the power of sin. We'll come to that in a moment. This is what Jesus did when he died on the cross. He broke 
the power of our sin. Did you, do you realize that? So when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he pay for the guilt of our sin, praise God, right? No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He paid for the guilt of our sin, but he also put to death our bondage to sin at that moment. Not only was the guilty verdict torn up, thrown away, but also the, the chains of sin we were bound in broke off. We were free. That's stage one, Jesus' death on the cross. Okay, now move up 2,000 years, stage two. This is you trusting Jesus. What Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago on the cross is applied to you when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Apart from trusting Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross is not applied to you. But the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ, what he did is applied to you. You're united with him in his death and resurrection. At that moment, the moment you put your trust in Christ, united with him, you died with Christ, you rose with Christ, and what he accomplished is given to you. So the guilt that your sin held over you, paid for, paid in full. And the power that held you in sin died with Jesus on the cross. That's what it means that you died with Jesus. So the moment you put your trust in Christ, you're freed from all the guilt of your sin. And the moment you put your trust in Christ, the bondage that held you in sin is broken. It's broken doesn't mean you become sinless, right? We talked about that. But there is a change. There's a transformation that comes. That's stage two. Stage three is baptism, water baptism, which pictures what happened at stage two. So you've got the cross, then you've got you're putting your trust in Christ for the first time, being forgiven, united with Christ in His death and resurrection, and then you've got baptism, which pictures what happened when you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, in the New Testament, baptism involves immersing someone underwater and then raising them back up out of the water. Powerful picture of what happened when you put your trust in Christ. Being put underwater is a picture of dying to sin. Being raised back up out of the water is a picture of you being raised to new life. That's what baptism teaches us about dying to sin. And it answers a crucial question. Because we could think, if we're supposed to die to sin, that die to sin is something that we do on our own. You might think it's your own willpower, your own discipline that's going to put to death your sin. But that's not what we see in the picture of baptism. Dying to sin happens in Christ, in union with Christ. Christ died breaking the power of your sin. And you participate in that by trusting Him. You receive the Holy Spirit that He purchased. And as we're going to see in a moment, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart that breaks you free from sin at that moment of conversion and that continues to set you free as you continue to live your Christian life. The moment we trust Christ, we die with Christ. Sin's power is put to death. Sin's chains fall off. Sin's bondage is broken. That happened the moment you were saved. That's, you died to sin. That's what Paul means in verse 2 there. 
And that's why saved people won't continue in sin. That's why. Because saved people have died with Christ to sin and been raised with Christ to new life. Now, we can't stop there, though. I hope you've got lots of questions. I have lots of questions at this point. We need to make this more practical. And so let's ask this question next. How does Jesus actually set us free from sin's power? I still feel pulled to sin, right? Greed, jealousy, lust, whatever it might be, right? We, we all still feel pulled to sin, so what about being set free from sin's power? What did he do? What did Jesus actually do? Because he actually did something very powerful and very tangible. So what did he do? Now, Paul doesn't answer that in this passage. But let me give you, he gives us a pointer in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, just jot this down, Philippians 3, 8. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss. That's the, I'm, I'm dead to sin. I'm, I'm counting myself dead to sin. I count all things to be loss in view of what? The surpassing value of knowing Christ. So the way Paul counts everything as lost, the way he puts sin to death, is by remembering, oh, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. That's how Jesus sets us free by the power of sin. And I want to show you how Jesus puts this himself in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. One of my favorite parables. It's a one-verse parable. So powerful. Look at what Jesus tells us. We're asking the question, how does Jesus actually free us from sin's power? Matthew 13, 44. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Okay, what's going on here? The treasure hidden in the field is Jesus Christ, who gives us far more joy than anything else in the universe. Not in the gifts he gives us, but in who he is himself. It's Jesus Christ himself who is our all-satisfying joy, our priceless treasure. Yes, God gives good gifts, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the gift, which is Jesus Christ himself, to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to fellowship with Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. God does give us many other gifts like children and like friends and music and grilled salmon. He, he gives us lots of good gifts and he wants us to enjoy those good gifts. But none of those gifts will satisfy our craving for joy. You know they don't. They're good gifts. Thank you, Lord, for them. But none of those will satisfy your craving for joy. Only the person of Jesus Christ, knowing God through Christ, is the only way your craving for joy will be fully and lastingly satisfied. It's the only way. So while we can enjoy many other things, we should seek our joy 
only in Christ. We should depend for our joy only on Christ. Like we sang, all my hope is in you, all my peace is in you, all my strength, it really is in you. He alone will satisfy you. There's other good gifts, but none of them will satisfy. Only He satisfies our craving for joy. So the treasure in the field is Jesus Christ. And this man represents all of us. All right? So think about this man before he found the treasure. He had lots of other possessions. Those possessions were things he'd been relying on, things he'd been depending upon to satisfy his heart. So think of you before you met Christ. Think of the things that you were pursuing to satisfy you before you met Christ. Can you think of the things that were in your heart? Maybe it was your career track. Once I reached a certain level, totally satisfied. Maybe it was having lots of friends, popularity, social hangouts. Maybe it was buying new things or looking handsome or looking beautiful or earth, other earthly comforts. Or maybe it was gossiping about people or looking at things on the internet we shouldn't be looking at. Those are things that we were pursuing to satisfy our craving for joy. That's what Jesus is talking about here. We all had things in our lives that we were seeking to satisfy us. We knew that they haven't really satisfied us yet, but we're just going to keep working at it until they do. That's how we were. That's this man, and that's us, before this man, before we find the treasure. But then one day, this man's walking through a field, and he stubs his toe on this box sticking up out of the sand. It's kind of the picture that I get. What is that? And he, he bends over, says, just push the sand away and push the sand away. And, and push. It's this big box. And he opens the treasure chest, and it's full of gold coins. He sinks his hands down, and he, he can't reach the bottom. This is amazing. Millions worth of gold coins here. That's what this man finds. Full of gold coins. Now that's a picture. That opening up of the, of the treasure box, that's a picture of what happens the day that someone told you about Jesus Christ. The day that someone shared the reality, the beauty of Jesus Christ, what he's done on the cross, what he did in rising from the dead, what he, what he promises to be to us. That's a picture of what happened the moment somebody told you about Christ. See, Jesus came to the earth to show us the reality of God. Right? The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus is God in the flesh. He wants to show us God's reality here, walking amongst us, showing us God's love, showing us God's strength, power, showing us God's tenderness, God's righteousness, God's purity, God's gentleness. Jesus shows us the reality of God. And Jesus healed the sick, He forgave sin, and He spoke words that gave people life in their hearts, hope in their hearts, peace, joy in their hearts. 
And Jesus promised in his teaching that everyone who trusts him because of his death on the cross will be completely forgiven for all their sin, past, present, and future, and will be reconciled to God into fellowship with Christ. And he promised that everyone who comes to him and trusts him will have their longings, their cravings for joy completely satisfied. Not in things Jesus gives, but in who Jesus is, in knowing him. That's what he promises. Now, up to that point in your life, I mean, you'd heard about Jesus before, right? But sin had deafened your ears. You maybe had read about Jesus in the Bible, or, but sin had blinded your eyes up to that point. But see, this time when somebody's sharing the gospel with you, the Holy Spirit that Jesus purchased for you on the cross is poured out upon you and goes to work. And for the first time, your deafened ears are opened and you're hearing the gospel and your sin-blinded eyes are healed and opened, the eyes of your heart, and you're seeing the glory of Christ. You had heard about Christ before, you had read about Christ before, but, oh, you know, what's on TV, right, didn't do anything for you. Now you're hearing and you're seeing millions worth of joy in this treasure chest for the first time you're seeing it. That's how Jesus breaks the power of sin from you. By the Holy Spirit opening your ears, opening your eyes, so you see Jesus for who he really is. And as you see him, as you hear the gospel, as you put your trust in him, he fills you with joy. You've never had your heart filled with, filled with joy before. You had tasted joy before, but you never had your heart filled with joy before. <laughs> I am filled. You are all I need. You are all I want. If I could have this joy, I would, I would turn away from everything else so I can have you. That's what's happening in this man's heart, and that's what happens in the heart of everyone who gets saved. For the first time, you're tasting the peace and the joy, the security you've craved all your life. Beautiful. It's Jesus. This is what Jesus does. So what does the man do? In his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys the field. Now notice that word joy. This is very important. This was not a sacrifice he was making. Are you kidding me? Sell it, sell it, sell it. I want to buy the field. Sell it, take it. What price? Sure, take it. I want the field. He was enthusiastically selling everything, passionately selling everything, joyfully selling everything. Why? The treasure. He wants the treasure. Wouldn't you sell everything to get that treasure? Absolutely, in a heartbeat. And that's what, what he did. And that shows us how Jesus breaks sin's power. All those other things that he sold used to be what he was relying on, depending upon, seeking. This is what's going to satisfy me. Those had a hold on him. He was chained to them. He was in bondage to them. Seeing the treasure totally changed his heart. I mean, why would you pursue a couple of Durham's instead of pursuing the millions of the gold coins? Who's going to do that? 
No one. Now, before you know about the treasure chest, this is all you've got. You're just going to be, I'm clinging to this stuff. This, is, this has got to do it for me. But once you open up and see the treasure, <laughs> goodbye, hello. That's how it works. That's how it works. Sin's inferior pleasures can't compete with Jesus' heart-filling joy. When you do a taste test, Jesus the treasure and sin's temptations, they just slink away with shame. They cannot come close to competing with the joy that Jesus Christ gives us. Paul call, Peter calls it joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's what he gives us. And when we taste his superior pleasure, we gladly turn from everything else to seek him alone. So that would mean I'm going to stop gossiping because Jesus promises more of his presence when, I'm, when my words are marked with love. I'm just, who's, who wants to gossip when I can have his presence with words of love? I'm going, to start, I'm going to stop looking at things on the internet I shouldn't be looking at. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oh, to see God in Christ, that's my joy. I'm not going to sacrifice my greatest joy for that. I'm going to thank God for the gifts, like children, right? God gives us good gifts. I'm going to thank God for the gifts of my children, and children are a precious, precious gift. But I'm not going to seek my joy in my children. I'm not going to do that to them. I'm not going to depend upon them for my joy. They, they bring me great joy, but I'm a better parent if I'm getting all my joy needs met in beholding Christ, and I can flow out in love to them. So I'm going to thank God for the gifts of my children, but I'm going to seek my joy in Christ alone because only He can satisfy me. He's always there. That's how it works. So that's how the cross sets us free from sin. The cross back here, stage one. Jesus died, breaking the power of sin. He rose to new life. His death purchased the gift of the Holy Spirit for me which then God the Father applies to me the moment I put my trust in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit opens my eyes and undeafens my ears so I see the treasure that Christ is. And that work sets me free from the other things I've been relying on. And then that's pictured in the waters of baptism. That's what it means to die to sin. That's how Jesus breaks sin's power. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit giving us a taste of Christ's superior, vastly superior joy. Now, this might raise a question in some of your minds, and I want to address it. It's a very important question. And the question is, what if you look back on when you trusted Christ and you don't remember feeling much of that? What's all this talk about treasure and joy and... Mm, that was not my experience. What if that's what you think as you look back on when you met Christ? See, sometimes the way we are brought to faith can keep us from seeing and feeling Christ as our treasure. Let me give you two examples, see if these are helpful. You may have been brought to faith in a setting where the, the whole focus was all about avoiding hell. If you put your trust in Christ, you're going to avoid hell. You won't go to hell. Put your trust in Christ so you won't go to hell. With no emphasis on 
Jesus the treasure, your all-satisfying treasure. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It is amazing that we can avoid hell. Oh, my. We're talking eternity here. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the debt for my sins so I don't have to go to hell. That's, that's glorious. But understand, the whole point of avoiding hell in the Bible is because we get the treasure of Jesus now and forever. But aren't there settings in which the whole focus is on the fact that you're going to avoid hell? Another possibility, you may have been brought to faith in a, in a, in a setting where the focus is all about prosperity and the, the abundant life defined as health and wealth that Jesus is going to give to you. That's a problem. If health and wealth is the focus and there's no focus on Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure. Now, don't get me wrong, God can give us good gifts. Many times it's so we can give them away, but he can give us good gifts. He loves to, to give to us, but his gifts are not the treasure. They will not satisfy us. He doesn't want us depending upon them or relying upon them or seeking them. He wants us depending upon him and relying on him and seeking him because only he will satisfy us. That's why. So if the way you are brought to faith did not focus on Jesus as the treasure, focused on something else as central, which was not Jesus. In that kind of a case, if, if you heard the gospel genuinely, if the gospel was there, and if you did in your heart turn from sin and put your trust in Jesus, then you were saved. You were saved. But you were not shown all the treasure that Jesus is. And so you did not see and feel and experience the treasure that Jesus is. And so you've missed out on some of what God has for you. But I've got good news. God will pour that out upon you now. If you then who are evil, Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will my Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So I've got good news for you. If, you've, if you don't really feel like you've tasted Jesus as your all-satisfying treasure, oh man, <laughs> you've got something wonderful in store for you. And I would encourage you to press in. Ask God, pour your spirit out upon me afresh. Show me Jesus as the treasure in a new way. Help me to see, help me to feel. And then open up the scriptures and just start to read. Read. And pray, and read, and pray. And God will always meet you in this. He will always answer these prayers. He will start to pour His Spirit out upon you more. You will see more of Christ. You will feel more of Christ. You'll see more of the treasure. You'll feel more of the treasure. And you'll find your heart changing more and more and more. I hope that makes sense. So here's what we've seen. Paul's explaining why saved people won't continue living in sin. And the reason is because when we taste, by the work of the Holy Spirit, the superior joy of Christ, sins, temptations, lose their power. Just like if you're starving, really, really hungry, and, and all you've got in the cabinet is some moldy crackers, 
Okay, well, I guess I'm just going to eat the moldy crackers, all right? But if all of a sudden you smell barbecue in the backyard, okay, are you going to be tempted with the crackers? I heard somebody say, no. <laughs> no! <laughs> There's no way. But if you're not smelling the barbecue, you will be. We need to smell the barbecue. We need to do more than smell the barbecue. We need to go out and eat some of the barbecue, feast on the barbecue. That's how we're set free from sin's power. That's what it means to die to sin. Like I said, Philippians 3.8, Paul says, more than that, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. See how that works? It's just in one sentence, Matthew 13.44, right there. Boom. One last question. How does this help us battle sin? So what do we do this afternoon when you find your heart filling with envy or greed or despair? What do we do? Let me give you three steps. First, understand the problem. Understand the problem. The reason you're being drawn to greed, for example, or wanting to dabble in sexual pleasure that's wrong or it's whatever. The, the reason our hearts are drawn to these things is because we have forgotten the treasure. We've forgotten the treasure. I mean, think about the man who found the treasure in the field. Why would he start running back and looking for these other things over here? There's only one reason. He, somehow, he forgot about the treasure, right? Sadly, our sin can give us amnesia. We can forget about the treasure very easily. And, and that's the problem. We've, under, we've, we've forgotten the treasure. So what should we do? There's the problem. What should we do? I would encourage you to remember what took place when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. What took place when you trusted Christ? Remember. Ask God to help you remember what took place that day, how Jesus filled your heart. So you died to sin that day how you saw Jesus' love in the Scriptures, in the Gospel. You saw Jesus' beauty. You saw Jesus' power and mercy and goodness and compassion and glory. You saw, and you were filled. And for the first time, you tasted all satisfying joy. Remember how you died to sin when you first trusted Christ. Remember how you gladly turned from everything else so that you could have Him. Gladly. Gladly. Just like the man in the field. So first, understand the problem. I've forgotten the treasure. Second, remember how you died to sin when you first trusted Christ. But don't stop there. Third, seek to experience this more through prayer and God's Word. God has more for you. We don't spend our Christian lives remembering when we are converted. He has more to pour out upon you today. He can pour more of the treasure out upon you ongoing, increasingly, throughout the rest of your life. And so press in. Seek Him for this. Cry out, Father, pour out Your Holy Spirit upon me. Show me Jesus' glory in greater measure. Help me see and feel the treasure more powerfully in my heart. Give me so much of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, like Paul said, that I gladly count everything else as loss. Give me some of that. Give me more of that. And as you open up the Scriptures, and as you pray, and as you read, 
And as you pray, and as you read, as you do that, God will give you fresh tastes of the joy of knowing Christ. He will. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give the Holy Spirit more and more fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He will meet you. He will fill you. He will show you. You will see Christ. You will feel Christ. And sin's temptations will lose their power, just like they did for the man who found the treasure in the field. Let's stand together. Father, all of us need more. More of the heart sense of Christ as our treasure. I pray that right now you would stir fresh hunger in our hearts. Fresh longing that we would see what you offer us, what we've seen in the scriptures right now, and that we would say, Lord, we want that. I want that, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for settling into just kind of business as usual sometimes and not pressing in for all that you have for us. And Lord, we as a church say, pour out your spirit upon us afresh, Lord, through the word, by prayer. Show us Christ. Show us your Holy Son. Show us the all-satisfying glory in Jesus Christ, our Savior, and break the power of sin again and again and again from our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.